We're not preaching through the whole book, but we are choosing some uh, key segments in the middle here to focus on as we talk about order or structure in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read what we're going to cover today and next week. That is verses 8 through 15. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus. So five books that all start with T, come right in the New Testament. Look for 1st Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Say this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There is a very familiar story in the life of King David, very early in his reign. You can read it yourself in 2 Samuel 6 or 1 Chronicles 13. It's very early when he had first become king over Israel and Judah. One of his first orders of business was to transport the Ark of the Covenant to its, what should have been a permanent location in Jerusalem. God said, I will designate a place where I will be worshipped, and that place is Jerusalem. The Ark had been taken captive by the Philistines, and then the Israelites had won it back, and it was staying in the home of a man named Abinadab in the city of Kiriath-Jerim, which is about 10 miles west of Jerusalem. The Philistines were moving the ark around on a cart, but David wanted something new, so he built a brand new cart. This was, the the ark itself is a visible representation of the holy presence of God, so David, I'm sure with joy, had this new cart made. The cart was pulled by oxen, and they were led by two of Abinadab's son, Ahio and Uzzah. The story says that David is with a multitude of Israelites celebrating. They've got trumpets and harps and tambourines. And it's a rightfully joyful thing because the ark of God is coming back to its rightful place. As the ark was traveling, there came a place where it was difficult for the oxen to walk. And the ark was in danger of, it seems, sliding off the cart. And so Uzzah, not wanting that dishonor on the ark reached out his hand, he saw the potential danger, and he steadied the ark. And the Bible says, most of you know, at that very moment, God struck him dead. As it died. It's similar to what God had did with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. He killed a man because of disobedience with regard to worship. And you can imagine, David meant well. He wanted a brand new, nice cart for this ark. Uzzah meant well. How am I going to let the ark of God fall, potentially be opened? I need to stop this from happening. They, They meant well, but that did not stop the judgment of the Lord. And David responds, the Bible says, with grief and anger and fear. Why did Uzzah die? 
God had already told the Israelites how the ark was to be transported. It was supposed to be transported by the Levites, and it was supposed to be held on poles that would go through holes that were built next to it on their shoulders. David, in his joy and in his zeal, was doing God's work, but he wasn't doing it God's way. And there's a lesson there for us even today. We can't be content simply with doing things we assume will please God if we're not intentional about doing them the right way. As New Testament Christians, we have to guard ourselves against distractions and detractions, particularly when it comes to corporate worship. Distractions are things that take our attention away from where it should be. Detractions are things that minimize the value and the honor that things are to have according to God. When God says do something, you need to do it and you need to do it the way that he tells you. We need to be careful not to minimize what God has said, not to forget it, not to ignore it, and not to shift our attention to something else. As a church, we are the body of Christ And that's not just a catchy title. That speaks to the essential function of the church. The church is the body. The head is Christ. He is our Lord. He is our master. Christ is the one who dictates who's in the church. He dictates what the church is to be doing. And he answers the question, how should we be doing it? How are we to honor the Lord, particularly with regard to corporate worship? That's what the book of 1 Timothy is predominantly addressing. Paul, the city of Ephesus, he wrote them the letter of of, of Ephesians. Paul had ministered there for about three years. And then he moved on, as he did as an apostle. He was planting churches in other cities. But after he had left, it seems the church had begun to drift both theologically and in function. And so Paul calls on Timothy to stay. If you look at chapter one, verse six, I'm sorry, verse three, he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Timothy, remain at Ephesus. Remain there so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then if you jump over to chapter three, we saw this a couple weeks ago, chapter three, verses 14 and 15, give us the, the, the heart of the letter. Paul says, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. 1 Timothy 3, 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, so I'm not gonna make it back in time or when I expect, if I delay, I'm writing so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's the key passage of this book, verses 14 and 15. He wants to restore order in the church. And in chapter one, we find that restoring order means returning to proper teaching, proper doctrine. Timothy needs to silence the false teachers. They don't understand the law. They don't understand sin. And they were having a devastating effect on the church. As we come to chapter two, and we saw this last week, restoring order in the church means making sure that evangelistic prayer remains a key component of the church. It seems they were already in danger of neglecting that or had already abandoned it. So Paul says, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he specifically says, that includes kings and those in high positions. That would be Caesar of that day. And for the Christians, they would have understood that Caesar was an enemy of the gospel. They rejected God. They rejected the truth. Even in their case, Paul says, pray for them. Why? Well, because they're commanded to do so. 
but because the salvation of sinners also is the heart of God. God is by nature a savior. He is a redeemer. It brings him glory to rescue his creation, and it brings him glory when his church proclaims and displays the truth. That's to be a pillar and support or buttress of the truth. When you and I remember God's purpose, we're gonna be helped in a big way to reject any ideas about what Christianity is that is not in line with the Bible. Some people have this idea that Christianity is predominantly a political system. That we're, gonna, we're gonna take over the culture. That's what the Romans accused the Christians of in the first century. You're, you're rebels, you're trying to undo. You, you say there's another king besides Caesar. And there's a little bit of that today as well. We're going we're gonna to win the world for Christ. And this idea of the whole world is going to become Christianized one day. Listen, you read the, the Bible, you read the New Testament. We are not going to win the world for Christ. People will be won to Christ from every nation and people and tribe and, tribe and tongue. But Christ himself is going to win the world to himself when he comes back. And sinners will be cast out. And those who belong to him will be entered into an eternal kingdom. Until that day happens, we as a church are here to proclaim the truth so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would come. They would be pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and they would become citizens of heaven. That's God's agenda in the world today. This world as a system, John says, is, is, is going to reject Christ. They're going to reject truth. There's going to be nations and times in which God brings revival and we see a greater uh, uh, awareness of God's truth, but that's not going to be the norm. Jesus said you have the many, the broad road, the wide door, and then you have the few. This world is not going to all by itself naturally convert to Christ. This world is under the God of this age, the prince of the power of darkness, and that is Satan. This world, Revelation says, will be united against Christ. They will serve anti-Christ. But even in all of that opposition, God is calling people to himself through the gospel proclaimed by the church. Verses three and four tell us the heart of God. He desires all men to be saved. He wants them also to come to a knowledge of the truth. Again, by nature, God is a savior. He's a redeemer. He saves sinners. He's also a sanctifier. He conforms them. He's changing their lives by his truth. You may have taken an anthropology class in college, a secular college, and they talk about the history of humanity and they, and they present the story of humanity, but that is not the story of humanity. The true story of humanity has nothing to do with evolution. It has nothing to do with technological advancements. This world as a whole is headed to judgment. But the overarching plot of human history is that God, for his glory, is redeeming men and women and children in Christ. That's the overarching story of humanity. In verses five and six, Paul tells us how that redemption takes place. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. All who come to God will come through, only through Jesus Christ. God, eternal, infinite, holy God, and sinful man can only be reconciled through a perfect mediator, and that is Christ, who is eternally God and now eternally man. He is the ransom. He's the payment who satisfied the right requirement of God's law is the only way to be reconciled to God. We have to let that reality sink into our hearts. And, it, and we need to allow it to confront every distraction that the world offers telling us what is really important in life. 
Everything else that happens, everything, no matter how simple and insignificant or major it's presented to us, it needs to be seen in light of God's eternal plan. You go home, you wake up on Monday morning, it doesn't matter what your phone tells you, it doesn't matter what you see on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever else you go to get news or on the TV or on the radio. Nothing that you can see or hear about in this world compares to the greatest, most significant news in the history of the world, which is the redemption of man through Christ Jesus and the sanctification of man through the truth of Christ Jesus. The the biggest news last week was not a murderer or fugitive being apprehended by the authorities. The biggest news of last week was rebels, wicked, vile sinners being saved by God, transferred into his kingdom, and then being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God's doing. That's supposed to be the front page story. Back in chapter 1, verse 16 Paul takes that understanding in his own life. He thinks back on his own life. He was a murderer. And then verse, chapter one, verse 16, he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, meaning the chief sinner, the worst of all sinners, in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's what God's doing in the world and that's what God has called the church to be a part of. We're here to proclaim the word of God so that unbelievers are evangelized and so that believers are edified. That's the mission of the church. That's the great commission. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus says it. Go disciple is the word there. Disciple people, whatever nation they're from, teach them the truth and in training the people, baptize those who come to faith and those who believe, continue teaching them so that they will observe all that Christ has commanded. That's the mission of God, that's the mission of Christ, and that is to be the mission of the church. In understanding the greatness and the distinctiveness of that calling, we should then see the tragedy of a church that gets distracted or detracted from that purpose. That was Paul's burden. That was his concern for the church in Ephesus. They were drifting from the mission of God and they were being sucked into false doctrine. False doctrine changes the purpose of the church. False doctrine adjusts the message of the church and false doctrine disrupts the order of the church. It disrupts the church's ability to glorify God by upholding and displaying his eternal truth. And so that's why back in chapter one, Paul talks about myths and genealogies and speculations. Verses six and seven of chapter one speak of vain discussion. It's being promoted by so-called teachers. Paul says they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand these things. The church is being distracted and that distraction is what led them to stop praying for the lost. As we come now to verse eight of chapter two, I'm just going to review a little bit of of last week. Paul addresses a distraction that seems to have been particularly affecting the men. That distraction, that danger was schisms and division. So he says, he he urges that, that, that the men pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I don't think he's primarily focused on that they need to pray or he's not focusing on the posture of prayer. He's focused on the attitude of prayer. Instead of focusing on the truth of Christ, these men, which would include the false teachers among them, they wanted to focus on themselves. So they cared more about promoting their own opinions, their own viewpoints. 
And if you put enough of those guys together, you get arguments. You get wrath. You get contention. You get quarrels about meaningless things that detract from the mission of the church. I think I've shared the story before. Not long after I accepted this position here, I went to a big group of pastors. It was an annual pastors meeting in Pasadena. And I was new, so I'm just there to kind of watch and observe, just getting assimilated to what's going on. And that meeting turned into a screaming match. It led to accusations of, of, you threatened me. It led to the cops being called. Four or five squad cars show up on what what sounds like a domestic call, yeah. Over a, a pastor's meeting? Think of the shame. Think of the, the horrible representation that is of Christ that police would have to show up to a pastor's meeting over money and other things. Well, it's just as horrible when a church gathers and they're supposed to be focused on prayer and worship, but mixed in that is anger and arguments. That's no longer a holy place. That's no longer a place that honors God. And so Paul says, stay away from that. Pray without anger, without quarreling. There are doctrines worth fighting for. And there are proper ways to disagree. But you don't want a church where people are fighting vehemently over meaningless things like the color of a carpet. That's a distraction from the purpose. That does not honor God. So men, stay away, he says. No anger, no quarreling. Check your heart. As we come to verse 9 now, we find that Paul switches his focus now to women. If you notice, verse 9 starts with the word likewise, or maybe your translation says also, in the same way. That, That word means there is a parallel between Paul's instruction to the men and Paul's instruction to the women, and the parallel is Paul's desire to prevent distractions from the function and the holiness of church. Just like the men have to guard themselves, so do the women. The men are tempted to shift the focus onto their own ideas, their own beliefs, their own desires in the church. Women might have a different temptation, but but the result is the same. This desire will be to place the focus on themselves rather than on Christ. So let me read verse 9 one more time. This is Paul's desire. He's, I desire that every place men should pray. Verse 9, likewise, I desire also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. The key term there, and you can mark it if you want, the key term there is adorn. Adorn, we think of the word adorn to mean to make pretty. The word in the Greek literally means to arrange, to put in order. The Greek word is kosmeo, from which we get the word cosmetology. That's connected to the, the, the idea of beauty. There, there's, a, there's a beauty industry. You may have heard that phrase. I saw an article. It was released in May of this year by a major global management firm, a consulting firm. It's more on the finance side. It said that the four areas of skin care, fragrance, makeup, and hair care, those four industries, generated in 2022 $430 billion dollars. billion generated by skincare, fragrance, makeup, and hair care. That's what's what's in our bathrooms, okay? And that does not include clothing, and that does not include jewelry. That's just the beauty industry, the, 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 the appearance. That's a big deal in our culture. 
People care about how they are put together. They care about how they are adorned. And if you notice, Paul does not say here, women, don't adorn yourself. He doesn't say that. His concern is what you adorn yourself with. We could say his concern is that a woman would ask herself, what is it that makes me feel beautiful or attractive? Everyone likes to look nice. We don't, may not say it out loud, but and we have different ideas of what nice means, right? Older people, younger people, generational differences. But we want to look nice. That's the idea behind the, the tagline growing up was men's warehouse. You're gonna like the way you look. I guarantee it. The assumption is you, you need to like the way you look. It's not as obvious in some of the advertising for women's products, but that's the idea. You buy this. You buy this product. You buy this article of jewelry or clothing, and you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to have confidence. This will adorn you. This is how you make yourself appealing and attractive. Again, Paul is not saying we should be totally disconcerned about our appearance. He's talking about appearance. He's not saying, women, when you go to church, you should be disheveled and frumpy and just like you got out of bed, don't worry about it. It's not what he's saying. He's concerned about women's appearance, but what he's saying is that a woman's primary concern as she prepares herself for corporate worship is not actually herself. It's not even the other women in the church. It's not even the other men in the church. It's not even her husband. Who's the concern when we come to worship on Sunday mornings as a church? It's Jesus Christ. He's the focus of our gathering. I recently RSVP'd for a wedding. It was a digital invite, so I go on the website. You got to RSVP for the wedding, and it said there, out of respect for the bride, I was not to wear white. That was on the invitation. I wasn't planning to wear a white suit, but, but that's probably a generic thing for everybody. Why do they say that? Have you ever heard that? Why do they say don't wear white at the wedding? Because the bride is wearing white. You don't want to detract. You don't want to steal from, from her day. The focus should be on her and on the couple. That's going to detract. That's, that's in poor taste, some might say. Well, in this case, it's, it's, it's a similar idea, although the, the pieces shift a little bit. Here's Paul, and his concern is that the church, who is the bride of Christ, not put the attention on herself, but on Christ, the bridegroom. The way that you get ready in the morning, the way that you present yourself in your dress and in your attitude is either going to help us all focus more or better on Christ or it's gonna shift our focus away from him. So how should a woman dress so as not to be a distraction? How should she present herself so that God is honored by her? Paul gives us three words right here in the passage. Number one, he uses the word Respectable. These are, this is the positive uh, example of his command. Respectable. Paul says they, they are to adorn themselves with respectable apparel. That's the ESV translation. Respectable apparel. Other translations might say proper clothing. Uh, some say modest clothing or suitable apparel. The idea Paul is conveying, particularly to the ladies, is that you don't want to adorn yourself according to the standards of the world. Instead, you want to adorn yourself to the standards of God. What you wear, how you present yourself is an extension of your heart, it's an extension of your faith. And the idea behind being respectable is that you are appropriate. That's, that's probably a helpful word there. When something is respectable, it means it fits the occasion. You dress differently when you're going out for a walk on a hot day around your block or at a local park than you would, might, than you would go to a funeral. 
Something has to fit the occasion. Well, we're gathered here. What is the church doing when we gather? We're here to worship a holy God. We're here to hear, we're gathered to hear him speak from his word. We're gathered to, to sing his praises. We're gathered to plead his mercy in our life. And to use the words of Paul, everything is from him and through him and to him. Everything is for and from Christ. So what does that mean for how a woman should present herself in her dress and in her attitude? You need to ask yourself that. You need to discuss with other people. She, a woman coming to church, should be directing attention to Christ. She is to be marked by reverence. After the word respectable, we get two more words. Paul says they should have respectable apparel, and then he says they should dress with modesty and self-control. Those are the next two words. This is how a woman should come to church. She should be respectable, she should be modest, and she should be self-controlled. Let me just address that first term, or the second term, but the first in that pair. Modesty. The eyes of our world, I don't know if they have a clue about what modesty means. They would say modesty, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't win you a husband. That doesn't gain people's attention. Modesty, the world says, is not what makes a woman attractive. And yet Paul says that's what pleases God. It's important that we understand modesty correctly. Modesty does not mean poor. It doesn't mean ugly. There are many examples even in scriptures of women who are, it says, beautiful of face and of form. Modesty primarily is an attitude of the heart and then it shows up in the way you present yourself. A modest heart is a heart that recognizes, one, the holiness of God, and two, the sinfulness of man. Biblical modesty, this may sound different to you, but the, the, the Greek idea, and even the biblical idea of modesty, carries in it a sense of shame. And it's not a shame only about the body. The body's not evil. But it's a shame that understands that we are sinful beings, our culture doesn't even like the word shame. That's why there's the word shameless because they, they reject the idea of sin. They reject the idea of judgment by a holy God. But shame is a biblical idea. And in the Bible, there are multiple occasions where nakedness is connected to shame. The, the earliest example is Adam and Eve. God places them in the garden. They were naked. The end of chapter two in Genesis says they were naked and unashamed. There was no sin. But as soon as sin comes into the world, there came the possibility of sinning against another and being sinned against by another, and so the result was shame. When Adam and Eve decided to cover themselves, did they magically get ugly? Did Adam gain 40 pounds after he ate the fruit? Did cellulite magically appear and now she's covering herself? No, this is not what happened. Something else is going on. Let me quote from John Piper. He says this, the foundation of covenant-keeping love collapsed. Adam and Eve experienced this in two ways. First, the one viewing my nakedness is no longer trustworthy, so I am afraid I will be shamed. Secondly, I myself am no longer at peace with God, but I feel guilty and defiled and unworthy. I deserve to be shamed. That's the end of that quote. So what did they do? They ran from God, they hid from God, and they did the best they could to take fig leaves and sew themselves loin coverings. And God steps in and says, that's not gonna cut it. In his grace and in his mercy, the first death in the Bible is God sacrificing an animal. We don't even hear about it, it just says he gave them new coverings of animal skin. He was literally covering their shame with a sacrifice. 
that shows us that clothing serves us as an object lesson. First, clothing is an expression of our sin. Clothing is a confession that we're not right before God. We, we need to be covered. But secondly, clothing is also a picture of God's grace and mercy because he has covered our sins by the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ. The world out there says, look, showing your body off, showing off more skin, that's sexy, that's beautiful, that's attractive, that's what makes you a, 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 a good woman. And in doing that, they deny personal sin and they deny the sin of everybody else. Adam and Eve, before sin came into the world, they were naked. One day we'll be glorified, sin is going to be eradicated, but we're not gonna be naked in heaven. We are going to have eternal reminders of Christ's mercy and love because we will be covered with the pure white linen robes given to us by Christ. And you might think, oh, I look awful in a white robe. No, you won't. You will look amazing because God is the one who dictates what beauty truly is. Not this sinful world. Your clothing will forever serve to help give all glory to God the Father because of what Christ has done for you. Clothing honors God and the inappropriate displays of parts of our bodies that God intended to be covered is shameful. Let me give you just a couple more examples. One more from the old and then one from the new. Isaiah prophesied about the coming captivity of Israel under God's judgment. And he addresses Israel as if she were a, a royal princess to be served who then was going to become a servant under the Babylonians. Listen to what he says, chapter 47, Isaiah 47. He says, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. So the image there is the shameful work of a, of a lowly slave, but even more, the shame of a woman who, because of her work or because of traveling through a river, was forced to raise her skirt and, and bare her legs. One final example of this connection between nakedness and shame comes in Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This is Christ's message to the church of Laodicea. He says, you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, there's that connection. Nakedness is shameful before the Lord, but to be covered in respectable clothing, that, that honors God, and particularly, it's the case when the church gathers. Just as an important aside, I, I wanna make sure that you can go extreme the other direction. I just wanna make one clarification. It is not nakedness in itself that is the sin or that is the source of the shame. It is the nakedness presented to others. 
That's the sin. The, 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 the human body is not evil. It's not a wicked thing. God made it. God made Adam and Eve. He made them naked. We have passages in Proverbs. We have passages in the Song of Solomon. We have examples and exhortations in which a man and a woman delight in each other's bodies. But that is within the covenant of marriage. So, so don't get this idea of, oh, modesty means all of this is bad. No, it's good. It's made by God, but it's confined in the sphere of marriage. You rip it from that and you dishonor God. The immodest heart is the heart that desires to steal attention away from God. And so you want to be intentional, particularly ladies, about not being a distraction. If you're coming to church and you think this is the time to show off my body, this is the time to show off my clothing, you've missed the point of our gathering. By your decision, you're rejecting the reality of your own sin and the reality of the sin of those around you. That's immodesty. The final word Paul uses here is self-control. So a woman should be respectable, she should be modest, she should be self-controlled. That's verse nine, the end of verse, or middle of verse nine. Some translations say discreetly or good sense or propriety. The word Paul uses there is, is a word that means having a sound mind, thinking clearly, thinking correctly. This is a person who is not given over to their impulses, to their desires. That's self-control. He used the word in chapter 3 of this letter and in Titus 1 to talk about elders. They are to have a sound mind. He also uses it in Titus chapter 2 in describing older women, younger women, older men, younger men, and younger men. So this is, this is supposed to be a word that applies to everybody in the church. Self-controlled. Those are the three positive qualities God wants from the women. And now Paul, as a pastor, is going to apply the principle more specifically, and he's going to do so with a negative. So let's keep reading verse 9. Here's what the women are not supposed to be doing. This is the wrong kind of adorning. This is what, what you may be tempted to think, but it's not what makes you attractive before the Lord. The end of verse 9. They adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. We have to understand that Paul is making an application of a general principle that he's just mentioned. And so because of that, I think we can say that the prohibitions here, we don't want to take them as distinctly absolute. You know, like, oh, you braided your hair this morning. You're sinning. Yeah, I don't think he's saying that. You happen to have gold or pearls. Uh, you know, how much should the dress cost? And it's now, you know, now it's too costly. I think he has something specific in mind that was happening at that time in the Ephesian church so I don't think this is an absolute prohibition on these things, but what he's warning against generically is extravagance, flashiness. Another word is, um, as an adjective, ostentatious. You, you, you're flashy, you want people to notice you. He's addressing these women, they're showy, they're seeking to flaunt either their bodies or their possession, their money. At that time in Ephesus, the gap between the poor in the city and the rich in the city was much higher than what we find here in our own church today. The rich women would come to church. It seemed like it wasn't happening when Paul was there, but he leaves, and now rich women become, begin coming to church, and they're making sure that their riches are on display. They would, historians tell us, they would braid their hair in these elaborate updos, if you will, but in the braids, they're adding their gold, their jewelry, their pearls, very beautiful, very ornate, very flashy, very expensive. They came, and church was a way for them to flash their money. 
There's a financial company online called Wallet Hub. It helps to understand finances and tracking spending, things like this. They released an article back in May summarizing the costs associated with the Oscars. According to their research, a first-time attendee at the Oscars, on average, spends $266,000 on their look for that night. The average attendee, if you get everybody, spends $1.5 million on their look that night. An A-list actress, on average, will spend $10 million that night on their look. And the most expensive jewelry ever worn was a Tiffany diamond necklace. It cost $30 million for a gala to celebrate the world's patting itself on the back. Can you imagine if someone came to church dressed like that? I don't, I don't think any of you are tempted to spend $500,000 on a dress. But it doesn't, I don't care if it's Easter Sunday. That's not appropriate for the gathering of God's people. That is an insult to those who don't have the means. And worse than that, it detracts from the holiness of God and the sacredness of our assembly. So again, you may not be tempted to spend thousands of dollars on a dress, but at a smaller level, ladies, you have to guard your hearts when it comes to getting ready for church. The best question to ask is not, do I look good in this? How do I look in my outfit? The best question to ask is, will my appearance, will my clothes, will my makeup, will my jewelry, will my hair, will it detract attention from Christ? Or will it help others focus on him? What am I doing here? When you look in the mirror, you need to look to the one thing the mirror can't show you, and that's your heart. Men, I think there is an application here for us. We need to take the lead in helping our wives and particularly helping our daughters understand how to think through that. This is how, this is how a man's mind works. We need to show them. We have the opportunity as dads to be very practical and helpful, teaching them what honors God. We help them understand that, yes, there is something the world elevates and holds up, but that is not in line with the standard of God. We also have Titus 2 speaks of the older women. This is another example of something they can teach. Older women teaching younger ladies. This is what's appropriate. I don't dress like this because I'm old. I dress like this because I honor God. That's why. Think about what it would do. Think about how a, a woman's clothing could affect even the reputation of a church. You, you go evangelize someone in the street at the grocery store, and they say, oh, I've been to that church. And all the girls, they're so disorganized and frazzled. and you know, That doesn't honor God. And, and what about the opposite? Oh, I've been to that church. Man, the girls are hot. I've, I, I, I'm going to go back next Sunday. I remember the girls at that church. Is that what we want? Not that. You have to, in the wisdom of God, you know, we don't want this and we don't want this. You're, we're here to do something honorable, respectable. There's some middle ground that you think about and talk with your family, your, your husband. Even the Gentile pagan religions of Paul's time had requirements. They would not have allowed women to show up at their ceremonies covered with paint and jewels. There are actually uh, historical records of how they would describe the prostitutes of that time. The types of dresses, the types of makeup, the types of jewelry. And they was rejected even by the pagan cults. They had a standard. Well, as a church, we don't want to add to scripture. We don't want to invent an external standard for everybody who appears. We're not going to be policing. How short should the skirts be? How, how low can your blouse go? How, how tight can the pants be? 
What's an acceptable color of dyed hair? We don't need to get into that. But you have to set a standard for yourself. What honors God in corporate worship? I want to convey to those who come that we're here to worship Christ. So you don't come to church with ornate, excessively fancy clothes. You don't come like you're ready for a fashion show or for a nightclub. How do you arrive at church? Look at verse 10. Paul goes back to the positive. He goes back to how we started this discussion. This is what makes a woman beautiful in the eyes of God. This is how she adorns herself. She comes not with fancy jewelry, verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Good works. When you see that phrase, particularly used by Paul, it's not just talking about nice things. Go clean a beach, go help someone. Those, those are good things. But in a general sense, it speaks to a life that is holy, sanctified, righteousness. It's speaking of the, the expression of Christian maturity. Those are good works. Like in Titus, he says, we're zealous for, for good works, for godliness, for the evidence that we belong to Christ. Let me quote John Piper one more time. He says this, close are not meant to make people think about what's under them. Clothes are meant to direct attention to what is not under them. Merciful hands that serve others in the name of Christ. Beautiful feet that carry the gospel where it's needed. And the brightness of a face that has beheld the glory of Jesus. End quote. That's the purpose of clothes. I want to direct attention to what is not covered and to what I do with those parts of my, bodies, of my body to serve others. Ladies, I know you're inundated with beauty standards. Every, every billboard, every ad. And as time goes by, there is an, a shame the world wants women to feel because their beauty is fading. But that shouldn't be the attitude of those who belong to Christ. Ladies, you are to rejoice because as the years go by, you know that God has been working on your heart. You are maturing in holiness. You are more equipped to give God the glory. And so you are even more so precious in his sight. And God will use you to direct people to the message of his son. So these passages for us really, is, it's like a checklist for, for Sunday morning. Guys and girls, you get up. I'm assuming you better look yourself in the mirror. You're getting ready to worship. You need to start again with a heart check. Is there anger? Is there an argumentative spirit? Is there strife with someone? Is there a desire in my heart to detract from the majesty and the holiness of God? Or am I coming to the house of the Lord with a pure heart? I am glad every Sunday to see all of you. It, it, it's a joy. It really is a joy to see you. We, we enjoy seeing, you know, when, I think a couple weeks ago, a lot of people were sick. It's a lot less people. It feels different. We want people here. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. But let's not be content simply to do what God says is good to do. Let's pay attention to the way he wants us to do it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are beautiful and sovereign and powerful and you have made and designed this world and you have designed men and women with their strengths and their unique abilities in your image to portray who you are, the tenderness of a woman, 
to raise children, to be patient and compassionate, the strength of a man to fight for truth, but all of those can be perverted and twisted and, 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 be, and end up being a, a distraction from the cause of Christ. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the times that we give into the standards of the world rather than uphold what your word tells us matters. Your word tells us what true strength is. Your word tells us what true beauty is. We pray you equip us to proclaim that. Help us focus on Christ. Help us teach one another to focus on Christ and may our gatherings each and every Sunday give all glory and be directed to Christ so that even as a visitor comes, they would recognize that these people are not of this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.